everybody, and welcome to the Money Made Easy podcast. We're your hosts, Angelica and Tisha. We're here to make it easier to talk about and learn about all things money, earning it, saving it, and investing it. So let's talk money, honey. On to this week's show. Hello, everyone. Today, we are so lucky to have on the show Jennifer Barrett. She is the author of the new book, Think Like a Breadwinner, a wealth building manifesto for women who want to earn more and worry less. Yes, please. She is also the chief education officer at Acorns, an app we'll discuss with her, and founding editor of its money site, grow.acorns.com. Before joining Acorns, she held a range of management roles, so many different companies, and she's a contributor to Forbes and other publications she's written for. The list goes on and on. You just need to read her whole entire bio. (laughs) Yes, you do. It's pretty incredible. So let's welcome Jennifer to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to hear all about your history and what brought you to today. Um, so let's get a little bit of background on you. And I know it's such a, a lengthy, you know, a history, which we love. So yeah, just tell us all the fun details. Uh, well, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> this is our podcast. And of course, you can read the bio as well. Um, yes. But most of my career has been um, spent in media. I was a financial journalist for many years, and then I moved um, onto the management track uh, a little over a decade ago and have worked for a whole range of companies, as you mentioned, um, Newsweek, The New York Times, Hearst, NBC, CNBC, um, and then finally, five years ago, made the leap out of journalism um, to join the app called Acorns. It's a saving investing app for those of you who, who aren't familiar with it. And I think one of the reasons why I, well, actually the main reason why I made that choice is that I felt like I was writing the same headline over and over and over again <laughs> over a decade about the retirement crisis and how Americans don't save enough and don't invest enough. Um, and I just saw it as an opportunity to be part of the solution. So, um, so it's well, been exciting. At one time, you were the editor in chief at Daily Worth, and I used I to get the Daily Worth emails oh. years ago. So thank you <laughs> okay. for that. I loved the simple daily emails. I felt like they they actually spoke to me as a female. And um, was that uh, one of the first financial sites to kind of target and focus on women? It was 100%. I mean, I think um, LearnVest tended to focus a little bit more on the female audience than male, but they weren't created to target women necessarily. And Daily Worth was 100% created for and by women. It was, and it was amazing to work there. I think it was one of the, I'm going to say the first time because um, I feel like as a journalist, it, I, that is a mission driven role. And that's why I chose to go into journalism. But I really felt like my passion and my interest and everything aligned so well with what we were doing at Daily Worth. I just, it like, it lit a spark under me. And I I also just felt like, wow, there's so much work to be done to close the the gender wage gap, the gender wealth gap, the gender leadership gap. And, um, you know, and I felt like we were just starting to scratch the surface there a little bit with Daily Worth. So it was, that was, yeah, one of my favorite jobs. I'm sorry to say that it no longer exists, but Jean Chatsky has bought it and she's doing great work too. So, um, and now there are many sites targeting women. So I feel like we've, you know, we've um, opened the door, opened the door. Exactly. Paved the way. I love it. 
Uh, in all of your time with all of these different roles in finance as a female, have you felt like you've been or have you been outnumbered? And, and if so, what has that felt like? Um, that's interesting you bring that up. I, I actually, in one of the chapters in the book, I open with, um, <laughs> with a scene from, from uh, Acorns. When I first joined, I was the first female executive to be hired there. And I was the 75th hire. Um, the first woman, yeah. And there was one what? other woman hired in senior management the same day. So we were the only two even in senior management. Um, and I have this very specific memory of <laughs> flying out to California and coming in to speak to the team. And as I'm speaking to them, I remember looking around and just thinking to myself, where are the women I had been, I've worked for so many female focused media companies. I think I just wasn't used to being one of the few women in the room. And it was the first time where I really felt that um, deeply. And, um, and it was kind of, it was kind of lonely, I would say, um, for those first couple of years. I mean, it's true when you move into senior management, generally, there's sort of the, the idea that it's a little lonelier because there are fewer people at your level to talk to. It's not the same as when you first join a company early in your 20s and that's your social life too. But, um, but I am happy to say that Noah, who's our CEO, Noah Kerner, was really committed to, to creating a more diverse senior leadership team and we are now quite diverse. So that has changed quite a bit over the last five years. But I still remember that day looking around and thinking, oh my gosh, everything I've read, <laughs> it's, it's true. And really thinking like, okay, it is financial services plus technology to bro heavy industry. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't really be surprised here, but it still was shocking to be in a room full of people where there were very few female faces at that time. Yeah. I mean, that is a, that's a big number, 75 <laughs> hires before you. <laughs> And they, I mean, there were women, but we were, you know, um, the first women in, in senior leadership. And I was the first on the exec team. Um, and that has, that has shifted, but That's it also right. made me determined to find women outside of the company, mm -hmm. um, who may be experiencing similar things. So through groups like chief, and I'm a founding member there, um, I, I really found my people. I mean, I, it was, it's, so important. I cannot stress enough how important it is for female leaders, female managers who feel like they're the only in their company to find other women outside of their company who can mirror what they're going through and provide that support and inspiration. I mean, it was a game changer for me. It really was. What was the name of the organization that you mentioned Chief. just now? Chief. Chief. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it was founded um, a little over two years ago. And uh, it's Lindsay and Carolyn are the co-founders and they were both in senior management at different companies and felt the same way. They couldn't find, they felt lonely. <laughs> they couldn't find other women who were at their level with whom to you know, support each other, inspire each other, um, commiserate with each other sometimes. And so they founded Chief, which is a female only network that's based in New York, but is now expanding all over the country. And I, a friend sent me an early invite to it. And I thought, oh, yes, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I joined very early on. Now they've blown up. And of course, there are so many other 
groups like that, like Luminary and The Riveter, and I, I can go on and on. It's just been fantastic to see over the last few years how many of these groups have sprung up. And there, there is such a need for it. I really think there is, because if you think about that, the pain and isolation of being an only, it's one of the reasons why women end up leaving the workforce or stagnating at a certain level. You know, I mean, there are a lot of factors, obviously, but this is a big one. So I think finding that support is just, it's so necessary. Definitely. Definitely. What I love, I love hearing about these organizations and I think they're such a important, especially for those women who are graduating from college and who need mentors to look up to, you know, to see like, oh, wow, there are people in senior leadership who are women, you know, and I can do that too. So I think that's, thank you so much for sharing about those organizations because I have yet to hear about them. And I do think that they're very important for, you know, the younger leaders in our, in the world too. A hundred percent. And I think Luminary and there are others like, Hey Mama focuses on working moms, Albright, um, dreamers and doers. I mean, there are just so many out there right now. Um, and a lot of them have those mentorship programs too. So oh, that's, um, that's part of the point is to like kind of pay it forward once you're in leadership and, and to provide um, a role model for yeah. women who are just entering the, the, the workforce. That's awesome. So well, tell us a little you. bit about your work at Acorns and for people that don't know what the, the Acorns app is, I feel like sure. you can explain it a lot better than either one of us. <laughs> sure. I think, well, we're best known as the spare change investing app. I think um, certainly when I talk to people about it, that's um, that was our first feature and probably still our best known feature. And that the idea behind that, it's actually what drew me to the company initially um, because I thought it was such a brilliant idea. And the idea was you... Um, connect to your debit card. And when you spend, we round up your purchases and we invest the change. And what was so um, kind of mind blowing (laughs) about that is, is that it actually makes investing um, so much easier on so many levels. And I know having researched women in investing in particular, that we are more wary to invest in stocks, generally speaking, um, you know, and that we are more risk averse, again, generally speaking. And I think Acorns, and we start, we tend to believe that you need to have a lot of money to invest. And Acorns just blew through all of those oh. beliefs, right? Because it's, it's just spare change. And what else is it going to sit in your couch? So I think because the bar was so low in terms of the risk level, and then also um, just to start investing with your change was so easy that, um, you know, we have almost 40% of our users now are women. And I'm not surprised at all because um, I think we make it, we try to make it so easy to invest. And then what we see is a lot of people start with roundups and then as they see their money growing, um, they start doing recurring investments of five, 10, 15, $20 or more a month. And that's really encouraging. So I mean, I always tell people one of the most important things you can do with investing is just to get started. Doesn't matter if it's $5, $10, whatever it is, just get started. And so this helps to build that habit. Um, and it's just been amazing to talk to people who've you know, been with the app now as long as I have. So, <laughs> um, so it's really gratifying and particularly gratifying that we have such a high percentage of women users compared to other fintech apps. That is exciting. That's awesome. And it is so painless. I mean, it's like <laughs> you aren't, it, it's just happening. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do it. I mean, do, obviously, yes, much better if you can do more. And that's great that y'all make that accessible now because that's, uh, that's an added newer thing, isn't it? Or has that always been there? 
The recurring con uh, contributions have always been there. What's new okay. now is that we've moved um, toward becoming more of a total financial wellness system. So now first we um, introduced IRAs and there are three different IRAs that you can, you can open one of three different IRAs. And then we introduced the spend account, which is um, you know, like a debit card that helps you save and invest. Um, if you spend with certain companies using the card, they'll put money into your account. And that's part of a broader program called Found Money, which has literally thousands of companies. So if you go through the Acorns app or you use our spend card with those companies, they will then invest money directly into your Acorns account. And so the end result is that we're doing everything we sort of can to help you <laughs> save and invest more money, um, whether it's getting partners to put money in with you or offering we offer referral bonuses all the time. Um, so there are a lot of different opportunities to just get that money growing quickly. And then now we just opened um, custodial accounts for kids, which is very exciting too. It's called Acorns Early. I just opened them for my kids. So nice. <laughs> They're excited about it. I can't touch the money, but it's <laughs> for them. <laughs> and you're the founding editor of their um of their site, their teaching site, mm -hmm. their learning site. Tell us a little bit about Grow. Yeah, we. Um, when I was first hired, that was the primary objective mm -hmm. for the role um, was to launch a separate site. It's part of Acorns, but it is um, kind of independently run. And that was important because we wanted it to be more of a financial literacy site and not feel like it was just a content marketing portal. Um, and so we built that up as an almost standalone site. And then um, a couple of years ago, we partnered with CNBC where I used to work and they, um, we now have a 20 person team at CNBC, which is oh. producing the content. They've really helped to scale it. They've been fantastic as a partner. They're committed to financial literacy too. We have a lot of joint initiatives that we work on. Um, so it's really just kind of blown up over the last few years. That's awesome. Yeah. You're helping all the women learn. Well, let's get into the book. Tell sure. us about the book. Yeah, so the book is called Think Like a Breadwinner. And um, the story behind that title is um, that I had my own wake-up call in my early 30s when we had just had our, our older son, who's about 18 months. Um, and at the time, we were living in um, a one-bedroom apartments in New York, which a lot of people who live there can relate to, but we were essentially sharing our bedroom with a toddler. And we were also using that bedroom as a home office and any number of other things. So it was very tight. And I remember one night in particular where I got up and I was kind of pacing back and forth with him and trying to get him back to sleep. And I just remember looking around and thinking, this is completely unsustainable. <laughs> we can't, we can't do this for much longer. And I had sort of known that in the back of my head, but I, I was wondering, like, why hadn't I taken action myself? You know, I still had at that time, I had about a thousand dollars of credit card debt. You know, I had, I don't know, a few hundred dollars in my savings account. I was saving kind of the minimum in my 401k. Um, I get into this in the book, but I hadn't negotiated my salary. I'd been at Newsweek for uh, almost seven years at that point and had never really negotiated. Yes. Big regret, big regret there. Um, <laughs> but, and I'll Seven tell you what, <laughs> I learned, I actually learned after I came back from maternity leave that someone who'd been hired in a similar role to mine and had just a few years more experience was making 50% more than me. <gasps> yeah, that was, that was, the, yes, that was the second wake up call. <laughs> but, but it was sort of the combination of those two things. And I started thinking, 
you know, how did I get to this point where the things that matter most to me are suddenly at stake? I'd always thought of myself as being an independent woman. I had a very successful career. Um, you know, I paid half the bills. I paid half the bill at dinner with my husband. You know, I really thought I was very independent. And what I realized that night was that I wasn't truly independent because I was almost just treading water. I wasn't really taking care of myself and taking care of our future. And as I started really thinking about it, you know, as in how did I end up here? Why am I not being more proactive? Mm -hmm. I realized that in the back of my head, I just always thought my husband would be the one to, you know, to have the better paying job and to invest all the money so that we could buy a bigger home so we could have a second child. And um, not to say that he wasn't doing a lot of smart, you know, making a lot of smart choices with his money, but he was a journalist too. He wasn't making much more than me. And, um, you know, and he'd had some financial trouble of his own. And so the reality was we didn't have much money saved. We didn't have much money invested. And I remember the next morning just getting up and writing a list in a notebook of what I wanted my life to look like two, three years from then. Like I wanted to have a second child deeply, deeply wanted to have a second child. We both did. And I wanted to stay in New York City. It's where we'd built this network. You know, we had all our friends there. We had a support network there. We loved our neighborhood. We loved our neighbors. You know, we, we didn't want to leave the city and we needed to find a new place. And I remember I tried to price it out a little bit. And when I saw the numbers, I had a, just a complete breakdown of, mm -hmm. wow, the gap between where we are and where, where I need to be is so big. And that is what sort of set me on a new course. And I started to think, you know, why wasn't I making these choices after I graduated from college? And when I look back, I thought, if I had been raised like a man who expected to be the breadwinner, would I have made different choices? And, and I would have, I would have made very different choices. And so then I asked myself going forward, what kind of choices would I make if I was thinking like a breadwinner and it literally changed the course of my life. That simple shift in the mindset. What were some of the things that you came up with as far as how would you think differently about as a breadwinner? Yes. I mean, one of the things I talk about is how, you know, it's so important to use each paycheck as an opportunity to be less dependent on your next paycheck. Oh, wow. Ooh. So I'll say that again. Yes. <laughs> yes. Use, say that again. use every paycheck as an opportunity to be less dependent on your next paycheck. So what that means is every time you have money coming in, thinking about what is the most I can take out of this check to put toward my future, to start growing that money so that one day I am less dependent. I'm not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. And that was the first big shift for me was thinking about, for me, it was just a numbers game. I looked at what do we have to have in the next two to three years to actually afford a place. And I know what it costs now to raise a kid. I mean, at least I had a young boy at that point. So I knew what the daycare costs were and everything. And I added all that up and I thought, okay, here's the number that I need to reach. And how am I gonna get there? And so part of it was putting more of my checks toward, toward the future and toward paying off that credit card debt as quickly as possible. Um, and the second was, I'm going to start negotiating like a breadwinner. I am going to negotiate like my future depends on it, like my family depends on it, mm -hmm. completely shifted the way I walked into those negotiations. Every time I walked in, I mean, I actually would say sometimes, 
as I became the main breadwinner, I am the main breadwinner for my family. I really can't accept less than blah, blah, blah. And I would Ooh. say it, <laughs> but were even if I wasn't. Hmm? Were you shaking a little as you said it? Or were you like so in times. it? Okay. <laughs> the first couple of times were tough. And I think, and this sort of speaks to the importance of having a female network as well. And, and um, other women who are supporting you is that I had a friend who I had worked with in Newsweek who um, had recommended me for a job at NBC and knew the, the um, budgeted uh, range for that. And as she and I were talking, she said, just curious, like, what are you going to ask for? And I mentioned something and she said, mm, I think maybe you should aim a little bit higher. <laughs> it's like, really? She said, I think the range might be a little bit higher. <laughs> so I thought, okay. So I went much higher than I would have, um, you know, had I not had that conversation with her and they said, yes. And I think that opened the door to, you know, a whole new way of thinking about negotiating job offers. And then I moved into management and was the one making the offers. And that provided an enormous amount of insight into the fact that there are budgeted ranges and that, of course, you're going to usually, you know, you're going to offer um, the lowest end of that range, typically, with the expectation that a candidate will negotiate, certainly at a mid-level or senior level role. And I had no idea that was the case when I was on the other side of it. I thought what they're offering me is what they can afford. That's certainly what I thought at Newsweek. And I'm just lucky to have this job. Mm -hmm. um, and I was lucky to have the job, but they were also lucky to have me. I worked my butt off. I you know, was a great journalist and they're, you know, so you can still be lucky and have a job you love and get well compensated for it. You know, it's not one or the other, which a That's lot of people think. So important to yes. know. So important to change our mental thinking on yes. that you can, it can be both. It's not a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I encourage that. I say, love the job you're in, but get paid well for it, you know, get paid what you're worth and, and make sure you're checking your market value regularly so that you don't get, you know, it's very easy if you stay at a job to just get caught up in the 2%. 3% raises, um, and then ultimately miss out on the big jumps or the big promotions. Um, so it's really important to be constantly sort of checking your market value, looking at the promotions, going for the promotions, even if you don't feel like you're hundred percent qualified. We know all the data around that. When we talk about women, you know, men going for when they're, I think 60% ready and women waiting till they're hundred percent plus <laughs> ready. Um, and you know, there's no reason to do that. You know, there's a learning curve in every role. So I say, go for it. That's such great advice. I love that. That's such an important uh, message. So thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. And you state that nearly half of working women in the U.S. are their household's breadwinner. That is shocking to me. <laughs> the yes. problem is they still aren't being brought up to think like breadwinners, though. So mm -hmm. how can we change that? Yeah, and I think I will say that the pandemic may have shifted these numbers a little bit, but I am very optimistic that even women who've dropped out of the workforce will be coming back in once we've got childcare back in place and schools up and running in a safe way. Um, but it's true, there are a huge number of women who are their household's main breadwinner right now. And um, that's something we don't talk about enough. And for many of them, and I interviewed a lot of them, um, there was a distinct split between those who had been brought up to think like a breadwinner and felt prepared for that role and those who were not and felt completely unprepared for the role and even blindsided often and then became very resentful 
And that's completely understandable. And I felt the same way when I first moved into the breadwinning role. I was still kind of grappling in my head with this idea that, um, you know, I'm supposed to be the one who's the primary caregiver and my husband's supposed to be the primary breadwinner. How does this work when we have two kids now and I'm earning more? Like, how does that, how do I reconcile those beliefs that I have? Especially because when I grew up, my dad was the main breadwinner and then the primary breadwinner for many years, my mom stayed home for a while. And I think that's true for a lot of middle-class families where that is the model that they've seen. And so it's very hard to break away from that. Um, I think one thing we can do is I looked at the research and, um, as I was reading, I was thinking, oh, this is even true for my own childhood, is that parents tend to talk differently to their daughters than they do to their sons about money. So this is true in my own household, but the research sort of backs this up too, is that parents tend to talk to their girls about budgeting and shopping smartly, clipping coupons, um, whereas they are more likely to talk to their sons about building credit, investing wisely, sort of all the skills you need to be a successful breadwinner and provider. And for women, if you think about what assumptions underlie those lessons that we're being taught, it's that they're preparing us to be a contributor to the household, but to really be like the household budgeter, to be, you know, the, the main caregiver, you know? And those were the skills that in the past, when you had a, a sole breadwinner model and the men were out working, the women would be at home, they had to budget. They had to be very careful with their money. They had to clip coupons. They had to spend wisely. Um, and I think we have not evolved <laughs> our thinking or the way we talk to our kids to meet the reality of today, which is that most households are dual income households, very hard to survive on a, on a single income anymore as a middle-class family. And the reality that a lot of women are now out earning their spouses. And so, you know, how do we make sure they're prepared? Well, and there's even a lot of women who are uh, raising their children solo. And... Oh, 100%. More than ever before in history, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With like and a quarter of all kids. Some with help and then some with very little help from yes. their, from the father. Um, yeah. That was, um, that was another thing I found was interesting was after I had my wake up call, I started talking to other women my age and I felt like what was happening was we were entering our early, mid thirties, late thirties, and all the assumptions that we carried with us were now being challenged. Um, and so I had three friends who hadn't, you know, had met the man of their dreams by the time they were in their late thirties, all three became single moms by choice. And we're seeing that number grow, you know, exponentially right now. And only, I would say maybe one of the three felt prepared. The other two were just like, you know what? I only have so much time. I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna figure it out. <laughs> And I just thought, you know, how much better would it have been if you had felt prepared for this possibility a decade ago and you were already putting money aside and you were already thinking about this and you were already strategically planning your career to support a possibility like this, um, you would be in a much different place. And so that's true. And this is not to say that, you know, we should, you should think like a breadwinner because you will become the main earner in your relationship. It's not even about that. It's just being able to create the future you want on your own without having to depend on someone else. And that is the real distinction. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, and even I have, we're both just like, yes, yes, yes. All the I yeses. can get pretty passionate about this too. <laughs> we love it. We're here for it. Well, and just having the, I guess the confidence that you can make more, you know, and not yes. being content with just 
the salary you've been having for the last seven years or whatever. It's like knowing that there are possibilities for growth. And like you said, it really, I mean, we talk about this so much in our podcast with every guest is it starts with mindset, like knowing that your, your value and knowing your worth and going into every opportunity with that confidence to then, you know, lead you to other opportunities or more money, you know, it's so important. And it, I am so excited to read your book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could not agree with you more. And I, I talk a lot about that. I have a whole chapter on that. And I weave in a lot of stories of women and who have, negotiated their salary and how they did it. And, um, you know, even my sister, I, I talked to her about this and she was telling me stories about how she was trying to negotiate a job offer and was so nervous. She got her friend on the phone and her friend helped her type the email. It wasn't even like a face-to-face oh, negotiation. Nice. And it was still so, even though she knew she should do it, she knew mm-hmm. she was worth it. She still, it was still difficult to actually take the action. So I, I get it getting over the hump, especially the first time you negotiate it's, it is a hump. And then once you get over that and you see the impact, I mean, a difference of $5,000 in an annual salary has this ripple effect. It, mm-hmm. it really is a difference of tens of, or hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your career. So if you think about it in that sense, it is worth fighting for every thousand dollars you know, raise that Absolutely. you can get. Yes. That's, that's uh, so interesting that you mentioned that your sister also had, you know, to do that. So let's, let's just get, we love to hear how were you raised as far as was money talked about in the home? How was it talked about to, to you and your sister? I don't know if you had brothers or not, but just, um, did you, I mean, not that they're, we're not putting a bad on anything because we have our own histories. We just think that the money history of how, how you were grown up around money, how that's important to, important to hear. Can you share that with us? Sure. Um, well, I, I think, um, as I sort of flicked at before my parents, I definitely saw myself when I looked at the research and how parents speak to their children. Uh, My parents were really good role models financially in a lot of ways. They both, um, you know, they have accounting degrees. They're (laughs) careful with their money. My dad was super careful. Um, He grew up in, in, I mean, like abject poverty. His bedroom was a closet as a kid. Um, He really um, struggled to get out of poverty. Uh, when he was young. And so he, he was very, very careful with his money from the start. And so as a role model, he was fantastic in that sense. Um, but there was a little bit of a disconnect in how I perceived what he was doing versus um, believing that I also had to adopt some of those habits because he didn't talk to me in the way, you know, he didn't sit me down and say, okay, Jennifer, here's what you're going to have to do when you're an adult. I save this much. I invest this much. Here's how I invest my money. Here's what I'd recommend for you. We never had those conversations. Um, and then, you know, I think the, the big kicker was that I knew from a very young age, probably 12 or 13, that I wanted to be a journalist. And my parents were fantastic, very supportive. I, you know, I went into a journalism program in college and so many conversations with them and with my advisors about going into journalism, not once did we talk about the pay? <laughs> not one time. And so, you know, fast forward and I got my first journalism job and I made so little, I qualified for food stamps. And it was so out of line with how I saw my, my life being as a successful reporter. And, you know, I had this image from like sex in the city and friends and all <laughs> these ideas of what my life would look like in my twenties. It just did not 
align with what I was actually, the reality of what I was making. So first I went into severe credit card debt and then I got a second job. But I look back now and I think, I really wish that we had just had a conversation about, I know you're passionate about this. Be aware that you're not gonna make a lot of money starting out. So if you want this kind of lifestyle, you're gonna to wanna to get a second job. You're gonna to wanna to be very careful with your money or think about going on an editor track, just having those kind of conversations we never had those conversations. So I sort of, I learned the hard way. And I think that the same was true for, you know, my mom definitely taught me how to budget. My dad taught me how to balance a checkbook, which we still use back then. Um, and so I was pretty good at budgeting per se. I knew how to do it. Um, and then she gave me an allowance. And I remember I went shopping and blew through the entire allowance. And I went back to her and I said, I spent all my money. And she said, well, you're gonna have to get a job then. And this was in high school, I said, sure. So I got a job, which in one sense was a good lesson to learn, but I also got into the habit of, I can overspend and then I'll just earn more. I would pick up extra shifts whenever I spent too much money. And what it set in motion was this pattern of overspending and then hustling, hustling, hustling to try and pay it off. And so I was essentially paying for the past all the time rather than building money for my future. And it was a dangerous pattern that was pretty prevalent throughout my 20s. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who was in that oh, situation. No. <laughs> but it was hard to break that pattern. Um, I, I realized finally that, oh, I just had this, it's, it's kind of dangerous to think I can always earn more. I can always get another job because you're just a hamster on a wheel then. And that's really a terrible way um, that's a terrible relationship to have with money. So it took some time to break those. I will say, if I have a couple more minutes, I would just mention one thing about my mom that was amazing. And my, um, my grandmother is that um, they are both fantastic investors. My Nana's dead now, but she was a fantastic investor. And I didn't realize, I didn't learn all of this really until I was in my late twenties. Um, when my, my grandmother passed away, I think when I was in my early 20s and all i knew was that she had almost half a million dollars in her portfolio when she died and i just mm -hmm. thought that's so amazing she was a secretary how does she do it and i just sort of tucked that away but didn't think to really probe my mom on how exactly she did it now later i sat down with her and i said how did she ever do this on her salary mm -hmm. and my mom explained that you know my my nana had stopped working when she had my mom and my aunts and then um, when they were, I think, 12 and 14, my granddad came back from a business trip and told her he was leaving her for another woman. Oh, and she had been out of the workforce at that point for over a decade. And, um, and there was no such thing as a pension where, you know, if you're a secretary, there was no such thing even as a 401k at that point. And she was determined to be able to take care of herself, to be able to take care of her girls, to send them to college, to fund her own retirement. So she went back to work as a secretary and she hired a broker to trade on her behalf. And she used to go, my mom told me she used to go almost every day at lunch and sit in his office and watch the ticker tape and ask him questions. And then she devised this investing strategy, which I think is kind of brilliant actually, um, yes. where she invested in every company that she spent money with. So she invested, like my aunt loved Coke. So she invested in Coca-Cola. She invested in you know, shopping centers where she shopped. She invested in grocery store chains. She invested in utility companies. It was basically any bill, any check she wrote, she would invest in that company. And the result was that she had a very diversified portfolio of stocks. Um, and she never touched it until she really needed it. Like late in life, she would start to tap it, but she really did not touch that money for decades. And so 
not surprisingly, it grew quite a bit, grew exponentially, which is a fantastic lesson in investing. And so once my mom and I had that conversation, I really understood the power of compounding, understood the power of investing on a whole different level um, and began to put some of that to work for myself too and my family. Wow. That's amazing. And I mean, your grandmother is such an inspiring woman. I mean, that's incredible to hear her story. Yay, Nana. Yeah, Yeah. I know. (laughs) She was fantastic. I only wish I realized it more when she was still alive, but I um, definitely am am very grateful for her and, and for the lessons that she's taught me. Yeah. And, and throughout your experience of, you know, throughout childhood and learning about finances and all that, and now being, you know, working for an organization in financial wellness, I guess, how do you communicate money and financial well-being to your children? um, And how have you like kind of passed this torch over to them? Yeah. Well, so my boys just turned 10 and 14. I have two boys. um, And I try to talk pretty openly about money. So even when they were young, what I would do is we'd give them cash at the bodega down the street and we sort of, so they had an experience of like, this is what things actually cost. Mm -hmm. And then um, I can remember one specific lesson is um, Alex is the owner of the bodega and we've gotten friendly with him. And so I enlisted his help to teach them a lesson because I don't, if you're familiar with bodegas, a lot of what they do is they will repackage things and then sell them for more at the cash register. So one time there was a package of, I think it was Ritz crackers. There was a big box of them. And then there was a small sleeve of them that he was selling. And then there was a really small sleeve of them at the cash register. And my kids saw them at the cash register and said, oh, I want those. And I said, hmm, before you buy those, let's look at that. And let's look at the midsize one. And let's look at the biggest and just figure out the cost per cracker. (laughs) And so we did this with Alex's support. And my kid learned course that you get the best deal if you buy in bulk mm-hmm. so that was a lesson so they bought the bulk version and then they I feel like they're they got to be a little savvier as shoppers so those are like little ways that you can mm-hmm. teach lessons like that more importantly I've taught them about the stock market and um, I let them pick a stock uh, JetBlue which please God comes back after this pandemic, not doing so well right now, but I have faith, um, but they picked that one. And so we invested some money in that awesome. and they've been watching it. Um, they know very, they know a lot about what I do at Acorns. Um, I've opened custodial accounts for each of them. I've shown them how it's growing, how it's invested. So I'm, we just try to be really open about money. Like we're, we want to buy um, a bigger apartment now. I'm very open about like this is what we need in order to get the mortgage. This is how much this apartment costs. You know, just this is how much it'll be per month. Mm-hmm. Just trying to be a lot more open. And when I was younger, my parents did not feel comfortable talking about money in that sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think in some ways that was a disadvantage because when I entered the real world, I really had no clue how much mm-hmm. things cost. And so I'm trying to prevent that from happening with my kids. That's very typical, I would say. I, I think that that's how most of us were raised. And that's Part of why we wanted to start this podcast was just to make it easier to talk about money and just to make it easier to learn about money for, you know, and make it not like this out of touch, scary thing. Hello, we all have to use it. I know. No, it's so ironic. It's one of the the most basic life skills. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet we treat it as this, I don't know, this complex topic that, you know, only a certain number of people in this country can truly understand, you know, and they're like, and we only teach it in, I don't, I think 17 states have a requirement to teach it now in schools. It's, I know, I'm so glad you guys are doing this because it's so important. And I, I 
I hope that the tide shifts and that we start seeing this kind of education in, in all schools because it's vitally important. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for everything. I mean, we literally could talk to you all day. You have just <laughs> been such a breath of fresh air um, talking about finances and just talking about your experience throughout like your career has been so inspiring to hear. So thank you so much for everything. Um, we always like to wrap up with two questions. Um, the first one being, what is your definition of success? Yeah, I thought about this a lot. And I, I think it's really um, being able to have the life and the impact that I want to have and to support the people and the causes I care about. And that's what it comes down to. Love Beautiful. That. <laughs> and then what are the three words that come to mind when you think about the word money? Yes. Um, that list has probably shifted from when I had my, my wake up call, <laughs> but to, today it's, it's freedom, power, and impact. Ooh, I love that. I love that. Freedom is definitely our most mentioned word for sure. And, um, and that is, a, a just a huge relief to have that. Yes. Um, and so it's so important and we love everything that you're doing to help, uh, women and everyone through acorns, um, have, have more freedom with their money and to have a better place of, um, of sense of their finances and everything. And your book is going to be so helpful. So. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> That's the intent. Yes. So to go ahead and share with us all the places that everyone can find you, um, and find your book and all of that. Sure. Um, so the best place to get information on that is my website. It's just Jennifer Barrett, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-B-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. And you can find out everything about the book there, where to buy it, um, more information on what's inside. And then um, I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of that. It's J Barrett NYC. Awesome. And then um, Grow and mm -hmm. uh, as we mentioned earlier is... Yep grow.acorns.com. Okay. And then there's more information, of course, on acorns.com itself too. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you so <laughs> much for today. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of this. And we know that your book is going to be such a help to so many. I really hope so. And thanks so much for, for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation too. Thank you. And everyone, please go out and make sure to pre-order Jennifer's book. Um, it comes out April of 2021. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. The Money Made Easy podcast is here to educate, uplift, and empower you to feel confident in your financial decisions. Have any questions? Email or DM us on Instagram. Remember, you start by starting. Take one small and actionable step towards your financial goals today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. Might as well hit that subscribe button while you're there. And we'll see you next Money Monday.